Today we began a new series, as you can see by the slide on the wall up here. Um, it's called Mail Call. This is the part one. This is our introduction to the seven churches of Revelation. But before we begin that, I just want to make mention of the flowers here this morning. I want to thank Osi for getting them. Uh, these are in honor of Dick. And, um, you know, just wanted to let you know that. So thank you, Osi, for getting those. Um, but anyway, the, the book of Revelation is one of those that people love to try to study. And yet, at the same time, it's like this mystery, this scary thing, and I don't know. But um, to be honest with you, um, I'm really apprehensive, <laughs> to, say, to say the least, and, and getting into it. But we will be studying the first three chapters, chapters one through three of Revelation over the next eight or nine weeks. And so I would like to encourage every single one of you that can to try to be here so you don't miss any of the series because I think that what Jesus has to, to tell us in each of the churches can really relate. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about has your love grown cold? And it's going to require us to make a decision in our own hearts about our, our life with, with the Lord. But as we begin this um, sermon series, I want to talk to you about one of my, my, my favorite memories I have a lot of a lot of great memories when it comes to camp. Camp was one of my favorite things. Some some of my most favorite times in, in my life happened at camp. I loved camp. You know, I loved the worship. I loved the food. Mama Nola, man, she could really cook. She was the food was good. I loved the rec time, of course. Who wouldn't? But my favorite time of the day was campfire. Uh, I loved campfire. As a camper, um, it was so enjoyable to just sit around and, and talk and, and listen to what was being said. Now, Richard Rexford and I, when we were counselors, camp, campfire was awesome because we made some of the best campfires that you're ever going to want to see and spend the time around. I mean, we were, we were I, I, you know, I have to pat myself on the back. We were awesome when it came to building campfires. We, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah we, loved, we loved fire, you know. <laughs> but, but I have to say as a camper, for me, the most fearful time of the day, believe it or not, was mail call. I hated mail call. I just didn't want to receive a package or get three pieces of mail at one time because if you did, there were consequences for that. You would think that if you received a package, oh, I was, no, you got to pay for that. I mean, you big time got to pay for that because you'd either have to sing a song or tell a joke in front of everyone. And I didn't want to do that. My family used to torment me before camp by telling me that they were going to send me 50 letters that week in camp. I hated it. <laughs> I absolutely hated it. Um, but as I grew, as I grew up, 
I became the dean of camp. I followed in Jerry's footsteps. And imagine that, Richard Rexford and Bob Hart, as demented as they were from following someone's example, (laughs) we became deans of camp. I was dean for camp for about 35 years. And one of my favorite times of the day, as well as Richard Rexroads, was mail call. Because we became the tormentors. <laughs> and so, but I have to say that as a teen, I always loved getting mail because I never got much of it. Not, not much at all. And now as an adult, I would say that 95% of the mail that I receive is bills or junk mail. And I hate that. But every once in a while, every once in a while, I get a letter or a card in the mail that just really means the world to me. So a miraculous thing once happened on this island, this, this, this rocky, desolate, six-mile-by-ten-mile island. This island was called Patmos. You know, And what happened was awesome, spectacular. The majestic voice of the Son of God broke loose out of heaven and just absolutely penetrated through the clouds that hung heavily over a group of young churches during a very difficult time. It was during Domitian's reign. Domitian wasn't a good good leader. He was absolutely horrible. And as the cloud parted, this old man lifted up his dim eyes towards the heaven and he caught the most spectacular vision of the Lord's plan ever revealed to any human. Who was this man? Does anybody know? That's right, it was the Apostle John. And his vision was the vision of Revelation the, the revealing divine truth of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what Revelation is. It's the revealing divine truth of Jesus Christ. And so as we begin a new series that will focus attention on the first three chapters of Revelation, we will be read, we're going we're gonna to talk about and we're going we're gonna to see um, seven different churches and letters that are addressed to them. It's, we're going to kind of call this, it's, it's Jesus' royal mail call to the churches of Revelation. You know, but, it, but it's also, don't, don't miss this, it's also indirectly addressed to the modern church, which means us, you and me. This is the modern church. This is the, this is the church of now. And so it is addressed to us. This is definitely not junk mail. It's not something that you throw away. But mail that, that you hold on to, you know, for, forever, because it comes from Jesus. It's coming from Him. The message to these churches is as piercingly relevant as any message in Scripture. Absolutely. And, and the bonus, there's a bonus to all this. You know what that bonus is? These words in the book of Revelation come directly from the mouth of Jesus. That's the bonus. So my question is, are you interested to hear what Jesus had to say? 
Well, even if you aren't, I'm going to tell you anyway. So even though the scriptures are God's personal word to every Christian, as we tear open the envelope of Revelation chapter 1, we're actually reading someone else's mail. And, you know, the last I looked, there's a federal law against that, you know. So what we're going to have to do is take our chances this morning as we open someone else's mail. It's mail that's 19 centuries old. And so to find out who it belonged to, who wrote it, and why, we need to pay special attention, careful attention to the letters and introductory comments. And so what I've done this morning is I've put a mailbox up here. I want to thank June Fonstock for uh, letting us have that, and um, I painted it. And the reason why I painted it white is because the, the color white in the book of Revelation is the, is the color that is used the most. And it stands for purity. And so this morning, there is a letter in that mailbox. And I've asked someone, as I'm going to ask each one of you, someone each week to come and to read that letter for us. So I've asked Ginger to come this morning. So if you'll come and read that letter, we would appreciate it. If the, if the church smells a little bit like paint, that's because of that. I didn't paint it inside the church, but it, it's, it's, it still smells there. Yep. Dear brothers and sisters of the Cornerstone Church of Christ, let me share the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Greetings to the seven churches. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. A vision of the Son of Man. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. 
And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look. I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. May God's love be made complete in us. Sincerely, the Apostle John. Hmm. Thank you, Ginger. I appreciate that. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, God gave him to show his servants the things which must soon take place. And as we look at Jesus, Jesus is the revealer of this as he shares with John. Jesus is the one that's writing this. John is just putting it down on paper. Jesus is also, praise the Lord, the revelation. It's, it's all about Jesus, as indicated by the Greek word for revelation. The Greek word for revelation is apocalypse, which, does anybody know what we get our, our English word? What is it? It's apocalyptic. That's the word we get from that, from that Greek word, apocalyptic. The word apocalyptic means this. It means an unveiling, an uncovering, a disclosure. It's an unveiling. To rephrase then the first five words of, of the book of Revelation, what it is, it's, it's an unveiling of, of Jesus Christ. That's all it is. That's, that's what the book of Revelation is. It is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what occurred over the entire scope of the book. See, God, God pulls back the curtain on the future. And what he does is he allows John, the apostle John, a dramatic glimpse of his son's second coming. And so, so the apostle John gets that privilege. Who, the next question is this, who is the recipient of this letter? Well, I believe that God gave the revelation of his plan to Jesus Christ, who in turn sent his angel to reveal it to John. That's what he did. So the book of Revelation unveils Christ's full identity and God's plan for the end of the world and focuses on Jesus Christ. It focuses on his second coming. It focuses on his victory over evil. And we see that time and time again in the, in the book of Revelation. And the establishment, it shows and it focuses on the establishment of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus gave his message to the Apostle John in a vision, allowing John 
to see and record certain future events so they could be an encouragement. The book of Revelation isn't meant to be this mystery, isn't meant to be this scary thing. It's actually supposed to be an encouragement to us. That's what it's all about. It's supposed to be an encouragement to all believers. And John is none other than the disciple whom Jesus loved. If you remember back in the book of John and in different places, it was the Apostle John. And the Apostle John wrote five books in the New Testament. Can anybody name them? John 1, 2, and 3, yeah, okay. The Gospel of John and? And Revelation. If you weren't going to get that one, I was going to be mad. So he wrote five books in the New Testament. And so this is the very same John that we're talking about. So keep in mind that John is not technically the author. He's kind of like the messenger. Because Jesus is the author of this book. So in summary, look at what verses 1 and 2 say. It says, The revelation from Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by by sending... His angel to a servant, John, who testifies to everything that he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So this is the the revelation of Jesus given to John to give to us. That's what it's all about. So what is the promise? What is the promise? Well, notice what it says there in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it. Because the time is near. I wonder what he means by the time is near. You know, the promise Christ holds out to those who read this book is almost identical to the one found in Luke chapter 11 verse 28. This is what it says. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Who obey it. It's not just, it's not just looking at the word, reading it, and then walking away and forgetting all about it. It's blessed are those who, who hear the word of God and obey it. The word blessed here in this passage carries this idea of, of happiness, of deep satisfaction. So from from both of these passages, it's clear that Jesus means that only by taking the scripture to heart, meditating on it, obeying it, like we do in our own personal private Bible study, and inviting the Spirit to to lead our lives, are we going to receive that blessing? We need to be obedient to the Word. We need to be sharing the Word. We need to be, and I appreciated Dan's um, communion meditation about, you know, sharing it with the lost. We need to be concerned about that. Those who merely look at the words and walk away unchanged are not going to receive a reward for that. Notice what it says there in James chapter 1. I like what he says there in in verses 22 through 25 there. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. That's what he says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror. And after looking at himself, maybe, maybe you don't want to look at yourself in the mirror. I don't know. But after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. 
Well, some of you, I'm, I'm finding that hard to believe that you would forget what you look like. But that's what he's saying there. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Wow, what a passage of scripture. With the promise stated, John now shares the opening lines of of Christ's letter. But it is more than just a, a casual greeting. Encapsulated in these next few verses are the underlying themes and the beauty of all of Revelation. I want you to notice what it says there in Revelation 1, verses 4 through 8. He says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and was and is to come. Talking about Jesus there, who, who is and was and, and, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before, the, before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You know, talking about the resurrection there, what Jesus did to, for us on the cross. He has made us to be a kingdom and, and priests to serve his God and, and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And if you remember over in the book of Peter, he talks about you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. That's, what he's, that, that's us. And so he talks about that. He has made us into a kingdom and, and, and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. Even those who, who pierced him. And all peoples of, on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Wow. The recipients mentioned in the greeting are the seven churches located in this, this Roman province of Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. If you see the map here, and you look up here at the map, you can see the island of Patmos right off the, the, to the left there, and then you see all seven of the churches there. These are the seven churches that he has sent this to. The, the, the church of the first century was, was used to seeing Roman showcase its military power, they were indoctrinated with that. And now what John does, folks, John brings forth this heavenly entourage of, of unsurpassable power and splendor in the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, the armies of Rome cannot stand up to anything that Jesus is going to do. First comes the unchangeable God, followed by the Spirit, who is represented in the seven church churches the, the seven spirits you know present among the, the seven churches and then christ comes and and the, he's our savior he is the ruler he is the lamb of god and following behind him believe it or not is you and me we're we're right behind him saved sinners saved sinners the, the only difference between me and someone out in the world who has never met jesus christ is the fact that 
that, I'm, that, that the blood of Jesus Christ, I've accepted it, and he has covered me in my sin. But everybody has that opportunity. Everybody has that opportunity. Not one of us should walk out of here without accepting that. We all have that opportunity. And following behind him are you and me. We're saved sinners who, who he made to be a kingdom and, and priests dedicated to serving and glorifying the Father. And see, that's what it's all about. He talks about this idea of us being a kingdom, us being priests. You know, and he talks about that in Peter. You know, that we are, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's what he tells us in the book of Peter, First Peter. And so that's what we are. But see, next in this passage here, what John does is John gives us details about himself. Notice what he says there in 1 John, or uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You know, the apostle John had been exiled to the island of Patmos. This small crescent-shaped chunk of rock located in the Algerian Sea, and it was about 40 miles southwest of Miletus. See, what happened was, is the emperor, Dominion, or Domitian, did not want John around. He did not want him anywhere around. So he banishes John, you know, as, as kind of like a punishment to the island of Patmos. Because he had been preaching at Ephesus. And to keep him from spreading his message about the gospel, he sends him to this island. And it was at this time that the, the Christian church was, was absolutely facing severe, I mean absolutely severe persecution. And almost every believer was socially or politically or, or economically suffering. Sound familiar? Some were even being killed for their faith. And this is where John, he was speaking into that. He was talking about that. And so Domitian didn't want John speaking, so he, he basically banishes him to this island of Patmos. So beginning in verse 10, John takes us back to the moment of his encounter with Jesus. He starts with his amazing narrative with these words. He says in verse 10 there, he says, On the Lord's day, now I want you to know that that's the only place that that's mentioned when it says on the Lord's day in the New Testament. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. A loud voice like a trumpet. You know, no one knows exactly what he means or how John came to be in, in the state that he was in. We don't, we don't know how he is in this state. You know, our best explanation is a description that says that, that he was kind of like in this exalted state. You know, I, I don't, I'm not really sure he was in this exalted state. And so our best explanation is, is that um, several times in the book of Revelation, John says that he was in the spirit, that he was carried away by the spirit. Revelation chapter 4, chapter 17, chapter 21. You know, it's, it's, it was like the apostles, 
mind and spirit were no longer confined to his body on the island of Patmos. And, you know, I look at that, that was a miracle that was taking place for him. So what was John told to do? Notice what it says again in verses 10 and 11 there. If we add chapter or verse, verse 11 to that, he says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. He says to send that to these churches here. You know, and so that, that's exactly what it does. I want you to notice, you know, if, if we went back there again, we talked about that on the Lord's Day there in verse 10. That expression I said earlier is used nowhere else in the scripture. Uh, so we really are not sure what it means, but scholars speculate that this phrase was for a formal expression commemorating Christ's resurrection. Because if you remember, it was on the first day of the week that Christ arose from the grave. Paganism has set aside a day to honor their emperor. So also Christians choose the first day of the week to honor Christ. And so John shares with us here, and I want you to notice that John received two commands here in this passage here. First is this, to record all that he saw and all that he heard. And number two, to send this revelation to the seven churches located in Asia Minor. That was his responsibility to do, to record what he was going to hear and then to get it to these churches. And yet, he's on the island of Patmos. So how's he going to do that? But that's what he had to do. And so, you know, the seven churches were located in cities approximately 30 to 50 miles apart. Most likely, most likely, they are mentioned in geographical order in which male could be delivered to them. You know, so despite Domitian's effort to silence John, God just made him postmaster general of Patmos to get the word out. That was John. So come rain or snow or the heat of night or or the gloom of night, his word would get out. First to the churches of Asia Minor, then guess what? We have the word. So it got out to everyone. So in this study, the next question to ask is, why would we choose these churches? Why did, why, did, why did the Lord choose these churches? You know, why Smyrna instead of Philippi? You know, Philippi was much more known, or Sardis instead of Corinth or, or the church at Rome. Why did he choose these churches? Surely there are, are bigger churches, more well-known churches, more needy churches to have been chosen. So, so why did he choose these seven churches. Well, the speculation is this. The theory is that these seven churches were chosen because they were part of a a mail route. And so he was able to get that around to them. You know, there, there has been all kinds of speculation as to why these churches were chosen. But the real, um, you know, the real reason I believe is because it was a mail route. These are, these are real first century churches. Some people would say that they're not real churches, but they are real century, first century churches with real strength, with real weaknesses. 
So why did Jesus choose these particular, per um, particular churches? Three reasons I want to share with you. First one is geographically. They were readily accessible, as it says here, to one another and the world, especially with the city port of Ephesus. I, we don't have the map up there again, but Ephesus was right on the coast. And so they were the port there. So the, so the city port of Ephesus located right on the western coast of Asia Minor near Patmos. It's not very far, right across the ocean there to Patmos. Second of all, the reason why these churches were chosen is historically these churches exemplified strength that Jesus wanted to commend. And except for in the church of Smyrna and Philadelphia, also he wanted to present some problems that he wanted the churches to correct. All churches, no matter who you are, all churches have their issues. And you know why that is? It's because every single church has imperfect people leading them. That's just the way it is. And so Jesus wanted to be able to share some of the strengths, but also some of the weaknesses and how to correct those things. And then last is this, is the third one is spiritually the ch churches of every age share the same strengths and weaknesses as those historical churches do. Spiritually, we, we share in everything that, that we're going to talk about over the ne next seven or eight weeks. All churches share in those strengths and weaknesses. So these messages then really belong to the whole church throughout time. They really do. They belong to us as well, which suffer you know you know it's it's talking about suffering and, and sin and, and and it stands ready to serve the lord these are the churches and this is our church you know just like the first century brothers and sisters we face the same things that they faced we face exactly the same things that they faced and trust me as we get into the the next seven lessons on the seven churches you're going to see just exactly what i'm talking about as we face some of the same things that they did so we now come to what I would call the visually exciting part of this passage. You know, after hearing the trumpet-like trumpet voice in verse 10, John turned to find out who was instructing him. And notice what it says there. It says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. Have you ever had someone behind you that was just really... I mean, being loud and obnoxious and you just want to turn around and see who it is so you maybe want to reach around and smack him in the face or something. Well, this is what was happening. John, now, John is going to turn around and smack Jesus in the face, but, but he says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest the hair on his head was white like wool as white as snow and his eyes were were like blazing fire can you imagine that his feet were like bronze glowing in a, in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters in his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was this sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as though dead. Do you remember when Moses went up onto the mount to receive the Ten Commandments and he comes back down? What was the particular thing about Moses that that drew everybody's attention? He was glowing because he had been in the presence of the Lord and the glory of the Lord had shone on him so much that he radiated that glory. And when he came away from the Lord, when people saw him, they were afraid because he was shining like the sun. And it's kind of interesting that it says here in verse 16 there, his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Coincidence? I think not. I don't think so. John didn't speak. He, he, he didn't bow. What he did was he hit the dirt. Wordless. I mean, probably frightened. You know, his, his eyes glimpsed more than his heart could bear. And, you know, who was this, this celestial being, you know, whose presence caused the, uh, the apostle to fall to the ground in fear? Well, you know, this being, he, he, he reaches out. And what he does is he tells poor John, who is still, you know, lifeless at his feet, this is what he says to him. He says, then he placed his, his right hand on me. He said, this is John talking. Do not be afraid, the celestial being says as he touches him. Do not be afraid. And this is what he describes himself as. He says, I am the first and the last. Who's that talking about? I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what was to take place. Folks, when Dick crossed over that threshold... He walked into this celestial being's arms. This is Jesus Christ we're talking about here. The first and the last. The living one. The one who was dead, who was crucified, and yet the grave couldn't contain him. The grave couldn't hold him. And now he he is alive forever and ever. And every single one of us in this room who puts our faith and trust and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ faces the same glory. Wow. Pretty awesome, isn't it? Absolutely. Our first glimpse of this divine person focuses on the the majestic appearance. But then we immediately see his magnificent mercy in offering John a reassuring touch by placing his hand on John. That's what he does. Remember back in the, in the Gospels how many times Jesus touched people? And John right now is receiving that reassuring touch his right hand on John. You know, his description of himself 
must have brought comfort. And just think about this from John. As John quickly realized that this was none other than Jesus. Think about it. Look carefully at the three statements that Jesus makes of himself so that there is no doubt in your mind either. He first mentions that he, he says, I am the first and the last. I am the first and the last. Then he says, I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive. Mentioning his death and his resurrection. Though God the Father and the Son both share the first characteristics, it was Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. He was the one that was resurrected three days later by the Father. You know, in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36, this is what it says. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among those through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, he goes on to say, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died, and he was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. We are all witnesses, exalted to the, the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear For David did not ascend to heaven, and and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's what he tells him. And it says, Therefore let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. You know what? The grave could not hold him back. And when John hit the ground and Jesus put his hand on him, it didn't take John very long to understand that standing before him was his Savior, his Master, and his Lord. It was Jesus. And like John, you may also be wondering about the the lampstands and and the stars and, and what they represent. But again, Jesus comes 
to our aid, and he explains it. Look at what it says in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's what he tells him. So there's no guessing. The meaning of the lampstands is pretty clear, but I will tell you this. Theologians are not quite sure what he meant by the angels of the seven churches. They don't, they're not really sure, you know, were they heavenly guardians? Were they actual angels? Perhaps, but then why would Jesus address angels if he wanted the churches to read the mail? You know, questions such as these, you know, as well as the content of the passage have led many commentators to identify the angels as leaders of the individual churches. They could be your minister. Am I an angel? My, mom, my mom said I always had a face of an angel. No, she didn't. It could be that. It could be, it could be a, a pastor, a minister, a teaching elder, a prophet. You know, this is because the Greek word for angel is anglos, which means messenger. That's all it means, is messenger. You know, sometimes used in the scripture to refer to human messengers. For example... John the Baptist was referred to as the prophet, the, the messenger preparing the way for the Messiah. And so it very well could have been the preachers of the church or the elders of the church. We're just not really sure. If these are earthly leaders or messengers, they are accountable to God for the churches that they represent. And as a minister, yeah, and Jerry knows this well, Johnny, you know, all those who have served in ministry... We know that we are accountable to God. This is serious stuff. And so we are accountable to God for the churches that we represent. And so as we move from the first century to our own, I just want to share some personal applications or three truths from John's Patmos Island experience that has tremendous practical significance for all of us who make up the church today. Because every single one of us here today, we are a part of his church the same church, the same church that he was talking about with, with uh, Philadelphia and, and Sardis and, and Ephesus and, 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 and all those churches, the seven churches he's talking about there, Cornerstone is part of that. We're part of his church. So the first thing is this, is that Christ stands in the center of his bride, the church. His church is known in the scripture as the bride of Christ. Always remember what John saw. No matter how weak the church seems, no matter how weak it seems, um, how flawed or, or unfaithful, always remember this. Christ stands in the center. He is at the center of his church, no matter what. You know, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he says this. It says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will never overcome it. Will not overcome it. That's what he tells us. That's the promise that he gave to Peter, and that's the promise that we hold true to, is that the gates of Hades will never overcome the church. And his presence in the midst of those seven golden lampstands is a visual reminder it is a welcome assurance that we can depend on him to keep that promise 
Jesus is going to keep all of his promises, folks. And as Christians, we believe that, don't we? We believe that. But do we also believe that as individual members of his church, we must also allow him to be at the center of our lives? Are you allowing him to be at the center of your life? My question is this, and as I was thinking about this, this whole first chapter of Revelation, for me what it does, it comes down to this. Where is he in your heart? Where is he, meaning Jesus, in your life? Where is he? Is he left of center? Is he extreme right of center? Is he right in the center? Where is he? Where is Jesus in your life? The, the second question is this, the second the statement is this, is that God still speaks through the authority of his word. Many of you are, are perfect examples of that, living testimonies of that. You know, what was it that John witnessed coming out of the mouth of Christ? Does anybody remember? We just read it. What was it that was coming out of his mouth? That's right, it was, that, it was a sharp two-edged sword. I want you to listen to what the writer of Hebrews as beautifully makes it clear, this, the, the meaning behind this image. He says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And so he talks about this, this, this sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And this is exactly what it is, the Word of God. The question is, has time dulled that sharp, piercing blade? Never. And it never will. You know, will man-made religions dull the blade? Not a chance. Can you depend upon His Word? Can you depend upon that double-edged sword? Absolutely you can. It is still timely. His word is still timely. His word is still relevant. His word is still authoritative. And most certainly, his word is still relevant. And it is useful in our lives. How many times have you been so down and you go to his word and it just builds you back up and it lifts you up? I tell you, this has been a rough week. It's been a rough week for a lot of people. And the only comfort that you can find is the comfort that Jerry read to Kay when we were sitting with her in Corinthians there when he talks about the God of all comfort. That's what it's all about. We can trust his word. It is live. It is active. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. It's there to encourage you, to lift you up. And then, of course, the last is this. Unfortunately, still, or few still fall at the feet of Jesus in honor and humility. You know, hard to believe, isn't it, that few would do that? You can see it in the world. Of course, we've just come from reading John's beautiful vision of Jesus. Normally, our vision is clouded, and it's clouded by TV. TV shows, dirty dishes, 
It's clouded by soccer practice and grocery shopping and, and so many other things that, that we do on a daily routine. You know, it's, it's clouded by life. You know, we're all just trying to do life, and sometimes it gets hectic, doesn't it? Not much beauty or grandeur about our daily routine, is there? So let's not be too hard on ourselves, at least not for the wrong things. Sure, life is hardly blissful or happy all the time, but that doesn't mean that we can't develop a sense of sacred in the midst of it. We can still have that, that sacred joy no matter what happens if we're depending upon the Lord Jesus. You know, God speaks to us through all of life. He speaks to us through all of life, not just when we're sitting in a, in a pew or a chair at church or, or vacationing on an island, but in order to hear him, we must learn to listen for him in the ordinary What's the ordinary of life? Well, it could be a note of encouragement from a friend. It could be a phone call. You know, just saying, hey, uh, you know, I missed you. I just want to check up on you. Just the ordinary. You know, it could be, it could be a, a, a reconciling hug from a child. Praise, praise you, Father. That's what it could be. These are but a couple ways that we can fall at the Savior's feet in praise and awe during our daily routine. You know what? You don't need to prostrate yourself on the sixth aisle of the grocery store to give thanks to God. And besides that, people are going to look at you as if you're nuts. You don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. But you can whisper your gratitude as you fill your cart and you can thank him as you gather around the Lord's table, as you gather around your table, as you have a meal together. You know, as Victor Hugo from Les Miserables said this, he once said this, he said, there are thoughts which are prayers. There are moments when whatever the posture of the body, the soul is on its knees. Wow. So folks, this series of studies will be covering the message of the seven churches in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. And you may want to take time to get acquainted with each of these churches. Read ahead. Know what's coming. Remember, the book of Revelation is all about Jesus. That's what it's all about. Jesus is the revealer, and Jesus is the revelation. Jesus is here. He is not removed from our situation. Jesus is here. And what a blessing if we will hear him and if we will obey him. That's what it, it's all about him. He is holding his messenger in his hand, giving them the message. Jesus knows us. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motivations. He knows our attitudes. He knows our actions. He knows you. So where does Jesus stand in your life? My prayer is this, is that he is at the center. It's all about him. Amen? I want to encourage you as we come the next seven or eight weeks that you would just be prepared to come and know that, that your life's going to be changed because of what Jesus is going to tell you. 
through his word.